morning, everyone. Guys, good to see you today. Happy May 1st. And I guess this is May Day. I don't know what that really means, but Melinda Putnam does, and she's putting like baskets together. So if you guys like embracing the month of May, um, after this is done today, go out there and find one. And I don't know what you do with it, and I don't know what they look like, but I'm told that they're pretty, and so life is good, right? So make sure to check that out. Also, moms, we got Mother's Day coming up next week. And Gwen, um, with the Rock Children's Ministry, has put together Mother's Day kits. So kids, if you were like me growing up, where you're in this perpetual loss of what to get your mom for Mother's Day, swing back there. Gwen will have some kits that you can pick up. Those of you who are at home watching today, if uh, you want to pick one up midweek in, in preparation for next Sunday, you can grab that as well. So uh, that's kind of what's going on in-house here this morning. But honestly, good to see you guys. Glad that you can be with us. Crazy wind yesterday. My son had a track meet yesterday morning. And watching him do like these two-milers into the wind going, that's going to be an interesting time. You guys been out in this yet? I mean, it's kind of like weird but amazing weather, isn't it? And uh, I don't know about you. Does, Does this just like bring on like a sense of like, I don't know how to call it anything else but spring fatigue. You know, it's just like, oh, it's warm and I'm tired or something like that, which has a lot of irony for me today with the word that we're looking at. All this spring, we've been looking at these Hebrew words and we're using them as mind anchors, meaning there are everyday Hebrew words that Isaiah and the prophets in the Old Testament would use, but they kind of had this conceptual field around them that I think if we get the word, it becomes a way that we can have like a mental peg by which to understand major things about God. And by understanding God, understanding how he operates in this world, what he's like, the kind of relationship he's looking for, what it means to do life with him. And I figure we're kind of four in, so words are getting forgotten. It's probably time to do a little bit of review. We started with ahava. Give me an ahava just feels good to say, Ahava, right? Ahava gets translated by Isaiah to talk about the relationship he had with Abraham, like as a best friend, that Abraham was my Ahava, my soulmate. Ahava is this expression of love, but, but this expression of love that's this, this affection, this affinity, this closeness, this togetherness, this just, this connection at a deeper level, the Ahava of God, I would argue that maybe John, who wrote that God is love, might even go so far to say if he said it in his original Hebrew tongue or that of his people, God is Ahava. And the week after that, we got to the phlegm word, right? Chesed. That God is chesed. Give me a chesed. Kind of untranslatable, but I love how Psalm 23 lands the plane. Surely God is, right? Remember how this ends? Surely his goodness and chesed will follow me all the days of my life. His mercy, his unfailing love, his loyalty, his covenantal faithfulness. This idea that even when you don't feel ahava, there's something deeper yet God's chesed. God is loyal and faithful and reliable and true to the goodness of what he's promised to me and to you, which brought us to last week, which was a, a doubleheader, hama'af, right? A two-word phrase, hama'af, a burning nose, right? The af, the nose, uh, often translated as God's anger or wrath, but that God does have a 
burning nose, but God who has a burning nose also makes his nose very big. So his anger does not come pouring out. That there's things in this world that gets God angry. That it makes God mad when he sees the suffering that his creation endures. But that he's also patient because his nose is, well, honking big, right? His nose is big. Like Steve's, we found out. Hey, he said it. He said it. He said it. Own it, right? But that brings us today, and if you're tracking with this, to the fourth word I want to show you. And here it is up on the screen. It's pronounced kina. Give me a kina. Kina gets translated a few different ways. Oftentimes it'll get translated as zeal, sometimes as jealousy. Gwen mentioned it, ardor, which who uses that word, right? Like, like nobody in the universe uses the word ardor except maybe Geoffrey Chaucer in the, the 13th century or something like that. But, but passion, you know, and enthusiasm, kina, this, this, this zealousness, this, this jealousy of God. It is also, by the way, a delicious high-protein grain. God is described as kina. Not quinoa, kina. So one more time, just because I led you astray, give me a good solid kina. God, the jealous God. God, the zealous God. God, the God who is kina. And a lot like anger, a lot like hama'af. I don't know if we quite know what to do with the idea of God being a jealous God. It kind of feels off a little bit. It kind of feels maybe wrong. It might feel like a double standard because after all, you could see throughout the New Testament where, where we're kind of called to the mat for the sin of jealousy. I think of Paul railing on the Corinthian church where, where he says, you know, you guys are worldly. You're so worldly because there's so much faction and jealousy among you. I think of when he writes to the Galatians, how he talks about how the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And, and then, he, then he lists them off, and in the same package that he puts things like hatred and orgies and, right, and witchcraft, he includes jealousy. And yet, God commends kinah among his followers. I think of the tribe of Levi back in the Exodus story, who were the only ones not to go off following this golden calf kind of thing that everyone got roped up in when Moses was taken off. And how with, with, with kinah, with, with zeal for God and loyalty to him, they, they stood against it and the people of Israel to, to the furthest extreme. I think of Phineas, this priest of the Lord. You could read about him in the book of Numbers if you read the book of Numbers. Who reads the book of Numbers? Start at chapter 10 and it'll rock your world, all right? But I think of Phineas in the book of Numbers who, seeing the rampant idolatry, just taking over the Israelites again, in this, this, this zeal, this, this, this kinah, this jealousy for the things of God, stood against it, even in violent ways and, and oddly, Oddly and very disconcertingly, he is commended for this. The psalmists later will write about 
Phineas and his kina, almost as someone to emulate. And it leaves a certain sense of, I don't know quite what to do with this. But you'll see it. You'll see Paul, who was moved by a kina, both in his previous way of living, persecuting the Christian church, but then later in propagating and spreading the good news, the very good news that he once, with so much kina, tried to decimate. I think of Jesus in the temple of the Lord, flipping the tables and driving the money changers out with a whip. And as the gospel writers commented on this, they remembered that little phrase, that zeal for my house, kina for my house, will consume me. And so we have this strange paradox. God is certainly Kinah. There is no getting around it. He says throughout the Old Testament, I am Yahweh, your God. I, Yahweh, am a Kinah, God. And yet we see this danger of Kinah and yet this, this commendation of Kinah, if you will, for those that follow him. And it strikes me, how many people th that I meet, and I know we're often in this boat together, who have so little kina in their life. People who leave these passionless lives with no real drive, no goal, no real joy that propels them towards something and arguably struggling not with kina in their life, but the absence of it. I meet couples in relationships who hunger and thirst for kina again in these passionless relationships and getting themselves into all kinds of trouble and all kinds of sin just because they want a little kina and someone to have a little kina for them. Again, I think of so many Christians I meet who have anything but kina for God. That God is about as exciting as an insurance policy. We're glad that it's there, but have little time for it beyond that. And we read these stories and these psalms and these prophetic utterances from the Bible, these, these exclamations of the people of God who are overflowing with Canaan, and there's just like no, no point of reference, no point of access. I love this psalm, this one psalm. Look at how it puts it. Just, just get into the heart of the person who says these words. Let's have it. How lovely is your dwelling place, Yahweh Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of Yahweh. It's like, I'm so moved by you, God. I'm so just drawn to you, passionate about you, filled with ardor for you. That even the very place that you live, I want to be in. I want to sit in your 
couch. I want to sleep in your bed. I want to eat off your dishes. I just want to be where you're at. How, how few of us feel this way. How lovely is your dwelling place, O oh, Yahweh Almighty. How many of us come to the gathering just Oh, it's just so amazing to be here because this is the place where God kind of floats and shows up. No, we come and we just go, right? Do you ever visit someone's house and go, how lovely is your dwelling place today? <laughs> they will be moved. But can I ask, does your soul yearn? Does it really yearn for Yahweh? Does it faint? Do you swoon? Do you swoon for the Lord? Do you ever use the word swoon about as much as ardor? But no other word really does it justice, does it? Look, I'm not trying to shame you here today. What I'm just trying to point out is this, that for most of us, I think the answer is no. Perhaps with the exception of a few fleeting moments, a couple of high points, a couple of Mm, we don't often live lives of kinah for God. Look at what he says, my heart, my flesh. It cries out. Have you ever felt that way about a person? If so, you know exactly what I mean. To live with that kind of draw, that kind of passion, that kind of zeal where you would do anything for this one that you've fallen for. Oh, my heart, my flesh cry out. I love this line, better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your courts, Yahweh, than a thousand elsewhere. Like, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than... And you fill in the dots. Because there's a lot of great places you can be. And he's like, I would rather just stand at the door and like just, just be a waiter, just be an usher. That's, oh God, that's how much, how much kinah. Oh no, make no mistake. God commends kinah. God hopes and wants and admires kinah in his followers. And I find that for most people, kinah is a strange kind of thing. Because it, it, it's paradoxical, isn't it? We're both attracted to people who have kinah, and yet we also kind, find them a little bit fanatical and frightening. I mean, think about the people who, who, you, who you are drawn to, the people that you listen to, the people that you tune into. It comes down to this. It's not the content of what they're saying. Often it really isn't. It's passion. It's people who are passionate and seem to actually believe in something. And even if you disagree with every word coming out of their mouth, it's still who you talk about. It's still who catches your ear. It's still who kind of seeps in. We're drawn to people who are passionate. Because passion is a very lacking thing in this world, especially around principles and ideas. And when there is someone who is passionate about something, it catches our eye. And when they go further and actually put their money where their mouth is and practice what they preach, 
oh, a rare thing in this world. Someone who is truly integrated in their kina. It's like we're magnetically drawn to people like these. And yet I think we find ourselves often off balance with them as well because they're simultaneously frightening. Because when there's someone who's kina, there's no telling what they might do. When someone is passionate, would you agree? Zealous, would you agree? There is no telling what they might do. When someone is truly willing to live out what they believe, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence, it can be very dangerous and frightening to be around people like these. And so we sit here divided, both attracted and yearning and wanting, and yet simultaneously frightened and off-balanced and aware, and maybe unsure, even inside of ourselves, how to come to terms with people who are kina, with a God that's kina. But you know full well that when kina births within you, it consumes you. It becomes the living, driving thing of your very being. And make no mistake, Yahweh is Kinah. He is a jealous God, a passionate God, a zealous God. Kinah for his creation. Kinah for this, this thing of his hands, Kinah, he's Kinah for you. The scriptures from beginning to end are marked by a God who is driven and passionate and zealous. And there's no telling what he will do, how far he will go in his Kinah for you. I want to share a passage with you today from Isaiah. It's a bit extended. So please follow with, at least closely as you listen, or if you'd like, turn with me to Isaiah 59. I'm going to peg it up front here on the screen, and let's look at how it starts. Surely the arm of Yahweh is not too short to save. He's got a big nose, and he's got long arms. And it ain't too short to save. And his ears are highly tuned. They are not too dull to hear, which sounds great, but here's the problem. Here's the plight. Your iniquities have separated you. Do you know what an iniquity is? It's in the same vocabulary as like ardor and swoon, right? Your sins, your, your failures before God, your corruption, your wrongdoing. This stuff matters. It has an effect. It's not just arbitrary rules. No, it affects deeply the relationship with God and your iniquities. They've separated you from God. They've separated you and your sins have hidden his face from you. So that even though he's got ears like a, I don't know, whatever has good ears. A hawk, I don't know. Well, I don't know what has good ears. You do. You know who's got ears like that? 
he will not hear. Now don't go there yet. Don't go ruin the punchline on me. I got to read some. All right, back it up on screen. Let me read this to you. Let me read this to you. Well, you never read that. Oh, too late. Let me read this to you, and, and, and as you hear how Isaiah goes on to describe it, can I just ask this? Let the shoe fit where it fits. Don't try to put up inner defenses. Don't try to rationalize. But as you hear of these iniquities that Isaiah describes, if the shoe fits, let it fit. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble, give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds. And acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet, they rush into sin. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know shalom. So justice is far from us. And righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We growl like bears. We moan, mournf we moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none for deliverance. But it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight. Our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, and treachery against Yahweh. Turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived, and so justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. Did you identify with anything in there? At times hyperbole to be sure of the extent, but maybe not. Our iniquities have separated us from God. Our sins have caused him whose nose is large and arms are long and ears are keen to distance himself from the very one he is kina for. It goes on. 
Yahweh looked and was displeased, and there was no justice. And it begs the question in those moments, what, what do you do? Let me ask, those of you who have ever been in a close, intimate relationship, and something like this happened, that the other person in the relationship, maybe it was a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or even completely platonic, but that person who was like a soulmate, who, you know, how can I put this? got guilty of these kinds of iniquities with you? You know how it wrenches the soul. You know what it does to you. What do you do? I think in large part it comes down to kinah. What kind of kinah is left in you? Because the answer to that question often determines whether you fight for it or walk away. Listen to what Yahweh does. And you can give me the slide. He saw there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So he did it himself. His own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. And I love the imagery that it now gives. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in kinah as a cloak. He got garnered up for battle. He's going in. That Yahweh in his kinah does not walk away. He does not give up. He suits up. He ponies up and he charges right in. God sees his creation floundering and destroyed. He sees his creation marked and riddled by darkness and sin. He's appalled that there's no way out, no one to deliver. That is spiraling out into despair. And so he suits up and he plunges on in that is the kinah of God. I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, a zealous God, a kinah God who will stop at nothing and fight with everything. For the creation I love, oh, make no mistake, it can be frightening. But you want a God who is kinah. This kinah, this kinah God who will do anything for you. Because I'll circle back again. When someone is kinah, there is no telling what they might do. A God who lowers himself. Out of kinah for you, a God who allows himself to be humiliated for you, a God who breaks his own rules for you, a God who suffers 
through the same thing that he knows is going to happen again and again and again with you. A God who continues to take it and absorb it and feel the heartbreak and the pain of kinah for you. A God who becomes human. Would you become a roach? How much further distance is there between the almighty God and his creation and us and the rest of creation that he has made? Us and a roach, the gap is like that. Us and God, the gap is like that. And he lowers himself and becomes human out of kinah for you. And not in glory and not in wonder, but, poor, but born is the least of these. A God who is crucified for you. Who would you be crucified for? To whom or for what would you go to the cross? Are you starting to understand? Are you starting to understand the kinah of God? A God who will do everything and anything for his creation. And in those times when your iniquity is heavy, and in those times when God feels far away, and in those times when you're wondering that his nose is not long but short, Be afraid of his kinah, but take hope in his kinah too. Because while kinah brings about a fear of the Lord, and fear him you should, it brings undying hope. Undying hope for just how far he'll go for you too. I want to wrap this up today by reading you a quote. And it's a bit longer, so again, I ask for your, uh, your patience and your, your fortitude as you try to stay with me. It's from Jürgen Moltmann, a 20th century theologian and early 21st, who is a survivor of a concentration camp but get this on the other side. A German who fought with a Third Reich and was wrapped up into it and then was taken as a POW and languished in a British prisoner of war or concentration camp. And he writes about in that time how the Scots and the Brits would come in and they would start hanging pictures of Dachau and Auschwitz. And looking at the horror he would describe of what he never really realized was happening. I think we forget oftentimes when we think of World War II that the first country that Hitler conquered was Germany. And there were many Germans who got wrapped up and sucked into iniquity 
even if it wasn't of their own direct making. And it was in that time, in that camp, in coming to terms with his own iniquity and contribution to the horrors and injustice of this world, that he also came to God. met Christ, or maybe better put, became Kinah for him. And from a book in which he writes on life in the spirit, he says this, why is there so much despair and apathy about? Because we have betrayed our dreams and lost our hopes because we are afraid of being disappointed, we write off our hopes so quickly and don't dare to do things. Quote, blessed is he who expects nothing, for he will not be disappointed. We say. This attitude often leads us to make a cunning deal with providence. I always expect the worst. If it doesn't happen, great. If it does, well, at least I was right. It is better to come to grief with our great wishes than not to have them and to be successful as a result. The same thing can be said about what we will. Praying begins with what we really will, with our hearts and all our souls and all our strength. Here, too, we are often we are often gnawed by doubts about things our will is set on. It's impossible, we say, and don't rush ourselves to do it. I can't. By saying this, we are already anticipating in our innermost souls the possible setbacks and are getting in the way of our own willing. So as not to be completely disappointed, we only will half-heartedly. Our hearts are not in it, and we do not invest all our energies. But how should that, as Jesus would say, be done for us as we desire if we are not clear ourselves about what we really do desire and whether we actually desire it at all? There is a buildup in prayer. We begin with our wants and requests. We take up our thinking and thanking. These are the gifts of grace for which we ask and give thanks. But then we perceive the gracious hand of God out of whose fullness we receive and take and we grasp these open hands of the life-giving God, so to speak. From these open hands of God, we will be led to the open heart of God in which we are eternally in safe keeping. These images are a way of describing the road that leads us from asking in God to life in God. Finally, we no longer love God just because of his gifts of grace, which makes life endurable and good. No, then we no longer love God either just because of his wonderful presence, which surrounds us from every side. No, then we begin to love God for his own sake. And in that adoration, we fall silent.
Do you follow what he's saying? Where's your kinah for God? For the things of God and the way of God, where is your kinah? And if you're here today and your relationship with him or the relationship that you're flirting with, with him, is about what he can do for you, the prayer that he might answer, what he can give you to make your life better, well, you know, that's a good thing. But there's so much more that God wants in this relationship with you. He wants kinah. Passion and zeal, not just for what he can give you, but for who he is. For his own sake. That's what he has for you. Kina for you, for your own sake. Though nothing there that would deserve it. Have the same for him as well. So I want to invite you to rise. Let's pray. And if we can, move from asking and thanking him for the things that he's given to just adoring him for his own sake. Pray with me. Yahweh our God, Ekina God, passionate and moved and jealous and zealous for your creation. for these people. We stand in your presence. For better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Whether our hearts are distant and apathetic and cold or burning today for you, We stand before you in your presence as the God who is Ahava, Chesed, Hamaaf, and Kinah. Glory. Glory, honor, power, and praise. be to you.